Oh, great singing, great singing, great singing. I have got to say, I didn't understand a word you said. But that being said, Motu is so beautiful. I love to listen to you sing. Um, you sing those last two songs were just so wonderful. Um, and for me, the one that helped was where the words were right beneath on the screens. And I was like, ah, oh, now I know what they're saying. But at the same time, it's just such a beautiful, beautiful language. And so thank you for singing. Thank you for singing from your hearts. Um, we're going to study God's Word tonight. And so if you have a Bible with you, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. We've been in Luke 15 the past two nights looking at stories from Jesus. And tonight we're going to branch over to another story. A story from the Old Testament that you might be familiar with. And hopefully by the end of tonight you're much more familiar with and even encouraged by it. But Genesis 37, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And so there in the first book of the Bible, chapter 37. And before we come to our sermon tonight, let's pray and ask God to bless our time in His Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You for every beautiful language here on this planet where we can worship You. I pray that You would bless our time tonight. And that even as we study Your Word, our eyes and hearts would open up to understand more fully who You are. A God in control, a God of might, a God of strength, a God of power, a God of goodness and love who is at work in every moment of our lives, weaving together our lives. And so I ask that You would open our eyes to see that. Help these young people here tonight even as we gather the final thoughts from this camp week tonight and tomorrow morning, I pray that You would draw the strings of their hearts together to come to trust You. And so bless our time in Your Word that that might be accomplished, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the text tonight, our two morning lessons. In the morning we've been talking about? Job. Yeah, yeah, that'd be really good, really good. Both of you, you did good there. Job, and what we said about Job in the Job stories is that Job's friends this morning, if you remember, his friends had the wrong conception, the wrong idea of who God was. To them, God was, was simply this big ogre who's just looking to get people who do bad things. Or, on the other side, he's just this fairy godmother who just gives good things to all the good people and bad things to all the bad people. We find... The stories of Job now in this evening story start to go in line together. Because as we come to the Scriptures, that view of Job's friend's God, that idea of God, it just doesn't match up with who God reveals Himself to be in the Scriptures. God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. You read through the Old Testament, that's what it is. It's God saying, Here's who I am. When you see the New Testament, God comes in the flesh. And His name's Jesus. And Jesus is God saying, here I am. So that you come to understand who God really is, not merely conceptions or ideas about God, but what does God say He's actually like? And so when we come to Genesis 37, when we move into the lesson tonight, we meet a character who's going to commit himself to doing what's good. He's going to commit himself to a life of what's right, what God has called him to. He believes God. He's a young man and eventually a, a grown man of faith who seeks to obey God. But like Job, that doesn't keep him from having literally the worst life. Whereas Job has... The worst day, the character we're going to read about tonight and study and come to understand who God is behind the story of this character, this character is going to have sequence after sequence after sequence, moment after moment after moment that's just absolutely terrible. A relentless 
story of suffering and hardship. He'll experience deep pains, betrayals, lost hopes, shattered dreams. It seems like the whole world stacked against him from his teen years on. He'll lose everything like Job. And just like Job, he won't lose his faith in God. His faith in God will be all that he's left with by the end of our story tonight. And that'll be enough. And in the end, he'll explain to us with his own mouth, the testimony of this character will reveal to us who God is as he describes God and his view of God that helped him survive literally the worst life ever. That brings us to Genesis 37. Let me introduce you to Joseph. Verse 2. We'll read 2 down to 4. These are the generations of Jacob. These are the descendants of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph. Israel is Jacob, his dad. Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. The story starts tonight, and we have a man named Joseph. He's 17 years old. Who in here is 17? 17? Anybody 17 years old? Nobody? Okay, some of you are 17. Okay, Elizabeth? All right, we got some 17s. Anybody have the 17? Yeah, John Wesley is not 17. All right, all right. That's right. Pastor Matt, he's 17. There you go. No, 17. 17-year-old. That's right. There we go. All right. 17. Who was that in the back there? Frank. Are you 17, Frank? Can you stand up, Frank? <laughs> Just what I was looking for. Thank you, ladies. Frank. No? Can you stand up, Frank? So everybody can see you? Everybody look at Frank. Our story starts tonight with a 17-year-old dude just like Frank. Thank you so much, Frank. You're a hero. That's the hardest thing you're going to have to do tonight. We'll read about Joseph. It goes much worse for him, okay? All right. 17-year-old dude. Get in your mind, Frank, okay? We with Frank on this? 17-year-old dude starts our story here, and you find this 17-year-old dude is the youngest brother of a whole stack of brothers. He's got 10 older brothers. Same dad, different moms. We call that a blended family. This is how his story starts. Frank. Joseph. And Joseph is the youngest brother. Now we've had some discussion the past couple days about what it means to be the youngest. And I said it was good to be the youngest. And it is. I've got to tell you though, <clears throat> being the youngest there are times where the older siblings know that they're older. And they know that they're bigger. And they know that they're stronger. And they know that they at least think they're smarter. And so they think that they've got it all figured out on the little siblings. I was the youngest, as I've told you, of four boys. And I had an oldest brother. Let's see here. Oldest brother. And he thought he was the cleverest. Growing up, we would sit down around a table for breakfast. And for breakfast, my parents would buy a cereal. Breakfast cereal, you pour the cereal in and you pour the milk in. And the cereal that we would buy was a cereal, it, it, it was like, like dry cereal with like dried fruit in it. It's called Raisin Bran. Now, the, the best part of any cereal then is like the yummy fruit. And I, I, like, that's all I wanted in the cereal. That's all everybody wanted. Now, my oldest brother, I'm not going to say his name. I'm going to let you try to figure that out on your own. <laughs> my oldest brother 
had a way when he would get the cereal box. He'd take the cereal box, he'd be like, it was magic. He'd like open the top, and then he'd do like, into his bowl, and out would come just the fruit, leaving all the nasty cereal inside, but just the fruit would come out. Like he was shaking it so all the fruit would like slide to the top, and then he'd be able to just shake it right into his bowl and just get a whole bowl of fruit and like just a little tiny bit of cereal, and then the box would go to the next brother. I'm the youngest. I have to wait my turn. Next brother. By the time it gets to me, I'm like, it's just all cereal, no fruit. Every morning. There they are. Oh, this is so good. Just spoonfuls of fruit. I'm over there like digging through all the cereal like, I finally found a fruit. (laughs) Again, I'm not going to say who the oldest brother was who did this. I wouldn't want to ever smear his name. I will never tell you that it was Pastor Matt that did this. (laughs) But being the youngest comes with some advantages, but it also comes with quite a few disadvantages. And in Joseph's story, that's the reality. He's the youngest, and his brothers aren't just a few years older than him. These are grown men. You're talking about people in their 30s and 40s. Grown adult men all the way down. Ten of them. Now, when you see this story here, you find that Joseph's home life isn't ideal. It's not the type of family that you would hope somebody might have, that they're spread out. It's not just that they're there and they're older and they got different moms. It's that they also really kind of resent him. Why do they resent him? Because Joseph's dad, as you read this story, isn't the brightest dad. Like, Did you see what he just did? He was like... Mm. It says he's really old, okay? So bear with me. This is a walker? Do you have walkers? Come here, my boy. Oh, Joseph, my sweet little boy. You're my favorite son. What do you think the ten older brothers feel about that statement? Oh, to show you that you're the best son I've ever had. I got this special coat for you. Don't worry. It's very inconspicuous. Nobody will notice the bright colors everywhere. Wear it all day, every day, son. And let everybody know that you're my favorite. So you read the story, dad isn't necessarily thinking quite clearly as it pertains to brotherly relationships. He's going to put a brightly colored cloak on one of his boys, and that cloak will tell all the other boys who dad's favorite is. Way to go, dad. And sometimes dads miss it. I do. This is super awkward. As you read this, you're like reading another family's story, and you're like, ooh, like, what a weird family. So glad I'm not in that family. But as you read it, it gets worse because by verse 4, after dad does the coat thing, Joseph's there with his brothers. He's like, colored coat, hey guys, how are y'all doing? And do you see what verse 4 says about him? His brothers hated him hated him. And what did they say back? Well, look at verse 4. What did they say back? They could not speak peaceably unto him. I hate your guts. Get out of my face, loser. That was it. Guys, I don't know what's wrong between us. Close your face and get out of my face. Go away, loser. (laughs) Like, can't we just play in the backyard together? Will you push me on the swing? I'm going to punch you in the ear. Get out of my face. (laughs) I could not speak peaceably. These older brothers are already just irritated by his very existence. We would call this a toxic home situation. Joseph is growing up in a place that is not healthy for human flourishing. 
Here he has a dad who's mildly oblivious, older brothers who are actually aggressive against him. They can't speak peaceably unto him. They can't just be like, have a good day. They're like, have a... Die. It's like, have a, have a good, good day, day. Have a good day, die. (laughs) Can't do it. They try, it won't even come out. His older brothers scowl at him. Joseph's life starts, and you see here, it already starts a little awkward, a little tense. You might call it a wreck of a home life. His home life is not good, it is not healthy. One day, not-too-bright dad decides to send Joseph, who's already despised by the older brothers. He says, son, favorite son, come here. Yes, dad. I need you to go check on your brothers out in the field. He says, I want you to go. This father owns massive tracts of lands. His sons are shepherds. They're out in a distant field, far away from home. Go out and check on your brothers and see how things are going in the field. I want you to be their supervisor for today. Oblivious dad does not understand how brothers work. Again, I want to punch you in the ear. Joseph is sent by his father, and he goes to the backside of the wilderness to see how his stepbrothers are doing. Skip down to verse number 18 and see how that goes. And when they saw him, we'll read down to verse 24, 18. And when they saw him, Joseph, afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. They said to one another, Behold, this dreamer comes. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we'll say, some evil beast has devoured him. And we'll see what becomes of his dreams. And Reuben heard it. Reuben's the oldest of those boys. Reuben is an adult man, likely already married and has children of his own, who's there working that day with his brothers. Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. Reuben saved his life. Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that's in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. Reuben's got like this back door idea. How about instead of killing him, we throw him in this pit here? Thanks. And it came to pass, verse 23, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. You'll find that in life, hatred in the heart is just underdeveloped murder. You hate your brother, Jesus says. You want to murder him. That's what's going on there. These brothers who despised their brother had never worked through and solved the anger and actually come over it with victory, found themselves eventually getting to the point where when they see their brother, it's now going to work its way out as murder, just like Jesus says. That as they see him, it says, they conspire, they begin plotting. I just picture one of them over there, probably Levi. He's the mouthy one. He's the one who the priests are going to come from later on. Levi says, I just say we smash him in the head with a rock. And Judah's like, that'd be too quick. I say we torture him. They despise their little brother. And as he comes closer, these evil brothers out of desperately evil hearts are now plotting his actual murder. But good thing the oldest brother's there to stop it all. 
Let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a pit. That's not really the best rescue. That's like Superman seeing the building on fire and being like, oh no, they're going to die in there. I'll rescue you. I'll put you in this crashing car over here. Good job. Like, 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 like you're, you're not really doing a great work here, Reuben. The pit isn't the best place for him. Good call to not murder somebody. But the pit? And did you see how they put him in the pit? He finally approaches and they're like, all right, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's stick him in the pit. And all the boys gather around as he comes up. And they don't gently do this. They strip him of his clothes. They get a few punches in, a few kicks. Levi's still got a rock. As they drag him, kicking and screaming. This isn't a moment that's a highlight in Joseph's life. This is the most terrifying moment in his life. He comes close to his brother's hey guys, uh, dad sent me out here. He said I'm supposed to get him. And ten grown men surround you and start hitting you and grabbing at your clothes and ripping your clothes off your back as they hit you and kick you and hit you and bite you and pull on you and drag you to the ground and scoot you across the rocks, through the dust, make you to a pit and throw you in. Joseph has no idea. And I guarantee at this point, some of the brothers are still bartering for the death penalty. I say we kill him. I just say we kill him right now. Dad will never know what's going through Joseph's mind in this moment as his own brothers are all betraying him, as he's looking around them and they're threatening his very life. What's happening in his heart? It was already toxic with their violent words before, but now it's become violent, dangerous actions. Betrayed by all his brothers. No one stopping it. This is a dark, dark day in Joseph's life. He'll never forget. Look at verse 25. And they sat down to eat bread. Whew, man, beating up my little brother like that. Whew, that's got me tired. I'd go for a sandwich right now. You got the sandwiches, Reuben? Oh, man, and you make the best sandwiches. Reuben's are always the best. Meanwhile, what is Joseph doing? Joseph's in a pit right next to them. He's weeping. He's pleading. He's sobbing. Guys, what are you doing to me? Well, guys, really, what is this? What's happening? If you say another word, we'll kill you. You're lucky we haven't killed you yet. That's a good sandwich. <laughs> Pass me the apples. Oh, I love the apples. <laughs> Can I get some Maggie on my cucumber? Thank you. All right, all right, all right. Ice cold. No compassion. Verse 25. They lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah, that's one of the brothers, said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? You see, he's still thinking to murder him. He's like, well, once he finished with the pit, we're just going to kill him. And they're like, but wait. We could sell him. We could, we could actually make this a profitable venture. And Judah, the entrepreneur of the family. And Judah says, how about we sell him, verse 27. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. We won't be guilty at all. For he's our brother in our flesh and his brethren were content. And Judah speaks up, why would we kill him when we could just sell him and make money off of him? Literally, they're saying, let's turn him from the favorite son into a forgotten slave. Let's change who he is. I don't know if you're reading this and understanding what's happening here. This is human trafficking. 
Joseph just entered the human trafficking trade. He's now, against his will, brought in in a broken world. There's no hope for you as you get the shackles around your wrists and these Ishmaelites go, how much do you want for them? And they go, we'll give you a great deal. How much do you normally pay for a slave? Half of that. (laughs) Take him off our hands. Can you picture Joseph in this moment? What's Joseph doing? Okay, okay, hey guys, 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 I know you buy slaves. I know you buy slaves. Listen, listen, please just listen to me, sir. Please just listen to me. Slave, shut up. No, listen, listen, listen. My dad owns all this land. My, my dad, he lives, he lives over two hills that way. If you just take me that way to my dad, he'll pay you like ten times what my brother just gave you. Please just take me to my dad. That slave lies all the time. You can't believe a word he says. Isn't that right, guys? Sir, these are just my brothers. They hate me. Like, look at us. Look, look, we look the same. Like me and Reuben, we both look like our dad. Look at my nose. We have the same nose. See? See, we're the same. My dad's over there. Just take me to my dad. He's pleading for his life because he knows as soon as the slave train leaves, there's no hope for him ever again. Slaves go off to the west and never come back. They go work in mines and they die there. Physically bleeding from being dragged and beaten by his murderous brothers. Now shackled, they load him into the back of a Midianite cart. These Ishmaelites will now take him across the wilderness to a far country where they'll sell him for slave. Joseph, broken, terrified, his life turned upside down in the most shocking way. Picture Joseph on the ride. He gets out his his diary. Dear diary, today was really bad. I'm not sure where my pants are. They punched me. I miss mom and my teddy. All jokes aside, Can you imagine being in his shoes? Your life turned upside down in just a moment, and now? How will Dad know what happened? I'm sure they'll lie to him. I heard them. They said, get that coat covered in goat's blood. We'll lie to Dad, and we'll trick him. We'll say, we found him in the middle of the field, and the wolves ate him. Dad will never come looking for him. He'll be a slave in the middle of nowhere. Nobody coming after him. You find now Joseph's life Wow, that's bad. Can it get any worse? Well, it does get worse. Genesis chapter 39. Turn over to Genesis 39. The story goes on. And Joseph was brought down, chapter 39, verse 1, brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was prosperous. He was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him. He made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not what he had, save the bread which he did eat. Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored man. Betrayed by his family, sold into human trafficking, but finally things have turned around. Verse 7, And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. 
But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wadeth or knoweth not what is with me in the house. He's committed all that he has to my hand. There's none greater in this house than I. Neither has he kept back anything from me but thee. Because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph, day by day, that he hearkened not unto her, to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. What is it with this guy in coats that get him in trouble? It came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he, that's Potiphar, has brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. She laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. She spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. It came to pass as I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. It came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in prison. Things were just starting to turn around. Like he might be a slave, but, but at least it could, it could be a good slavery job. At least things could turn up just a little bit. But then Mrs. Potiphar is a terrible, terrible person. She's part of the problem of human trafficking. She sees Joseph in her house as a slave, as an object to use. And she tries to order him as her slave to do the unthinkable. But Joseph, look at me, Joseph refuses to sin when no one else is around. Nobody would know. Just him and her. Nobody's going to see. Joseph says no. Why? Why did he say no? Well, do you know the Ten Commandments? You know the Ten Commandments? Commandment number seven. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The story of Joseph takes place 400 years before the Ten Commandments was written. Joseph had never read the Ten Commandments. They didn't even exist yet. So how did Joseph know not to do that? Joseph tells you how he knew not to do that. The same way you know how to not do that. There was no Ten Commandments then. Now you even have the Ten Commandments on top of that. But Joseph had his love for God, a holy God, who hated sinful actions like one person committing sexual immorality with another person. It didn't take a rocket scientist to know this was wrong. And his love for God made him go, I don't want to do what's wrong. And he says here, my boss, I love my boss, and I wouldn't do this to him. His love for God and his love for his neighbor actually brought him to turn against sin and push back against sin. Even if his boss might have been an overly strict and stern police chief like you see in the story. All that Joseph had to guide him was his love for God and his love for neighbor. And because he loved God and trusted God and wanted what was best for his neighbor, he did what was right and best for everyone, no matter what it would cost him. And it cost 
him everything. He made the right decision, and he went to prison. You see the story of Job here? He chose not to commit sexual immorality. And now he's getting thrown in an Egyptian prison. It's not just that he got fired. It's not just that the chief of police was upset at him. Burning with rage and wrath, this police chief doesn't care about justice for the individual. There is no presumed innocent until proven guilty. There is, you know what, I heard about this, and we're going to deal with you, boy. You're going to prison. Potiphar is furious. It says anger. His wrath is kindled. He's burning in rage as he mistreats Joseph all the way down to the prison. I'm done with you. I gave you a chance, boy. I took a risk on you. And look what you've done in my house. Get in there. You might say, perhaps, likely, a little police brutality along the way. You might say, this is evidence that Joseph has now experienced all the corruption of a political system around him. Swift anger followed by injustice, not justice. Joseph's thrown in jail. Misery because of the failures of a broken legal system. Joseph, if you're familiar with modern lingo, just got hashtag me too'd. Cancel culture smacked him all the way into prison. A wreck of a home life betrayed by his family, into human trafficking, now to false accusations and injustice. That's his story. The guy who chose to do right and follow God. That's his story. What hasn't changed? God Joseph's faith in God hasn't changed. Because Joseph is convinced that when bad things happen, God is still in control. That no matter what is going on in his life, no matter how hard it is at home, no matter how hard it is with his family, no matter how hard it is around those who are mistreating him and abusing him, God is still in control and he can trust God through it all. This is evil. What happened to him is evil. It's the epitome of human brokenness, where humans are using other humans as objects. The brokenness brought in by Adam at the fall has now brought suffering into Joseph's life. It's the same thing that brings suffering into your life, and into your life, and into my life. The brokenness abounds in this fallen, painful, broken world. And good people, people who choose the right things, have absolutely terrible things that do come upon them. Just like the story of Job, just now like the story of Joseph, don't lose sight of the reality that God is in control. As far as Joseph can see, his future's uncertain. Now I'm a, a prisoner? Before I was a hated son. Then I was a slave. And now I'm a, a prisoner. Like, I don't think it gets any lower than prisoner. Like, how, how much further can I lose than my whole freedom? Trapped. Chained. Joseph's story turns a corner in chapter 40. God's in control. He always has been. And God has brought Joseph to the exact place that God wanted to bring Joseph. He wanted to get Joseph into that prison. And this was the path to get him there. Because in the prison, Joseph met a man who used to work for the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt. And as they talk, 
It seems like they might even become friends. And this man says, if I ever make it back to Pharaoh's court, I'll tell Pharaoh all about you. You seem like a great guy. And the day comes where the man leaves prison and goes back to Pharaoh's court. And he forgets Joseph for a few years. But the day comes where the man remembers and he tells Pharaoh. And Pharaoh knows exactly where to look for this strange Hebrew who used to be a slave, who's now a prisoner in one of my prisons. He goes down there and he finds Joseph in a prison. And Pharaoh says, I have a question for you. I need something from you. I've had the worst nightmares, and I need you to tell me what they mean. And Joseph, a man of God, gaining clarity and understanding from God, tells Pharaoh what his dreams mean. How would he have ever met Pharaoh if he lived back home on the farm with all the sheep? How? Pharaoh would have had some nightmares, wouldn't have known what to do with them, and that would have been the end of the story. But it wasn't. Joseph happened to be in Pharaoh's prison when Pharaoh had some bad dreams. Almost like somebody had brought him to Pharaoh's prison when Pharaoh had some bad dreams. And now that he gets to talk to Pharaoh, Pharaoh brings Joseph out of prison and says, come into my palace. The answers Joseph's given to Pharaoh are so clearly the right answers that Pharaoh says, I'm going to take you from being prisoner and give you a new title. You are now assistant to Pharaoh. The word is vizier. You're now joint ruler. In matters of finance in this country, you will now help manage the supply chains of our food in our country. From prisoner to the top of the food chain, literally, Joseph has now risen. Who did that? God did that because God's in control the whole time. Now listen, he gets here to the top of the food chain and something crazy happens. A famine hits the land, everybody runs out of food. But because Joseph had been the one at the top of the food chain controlling the food in Egypt, he had saved up massive storehouses of food before the famine hit. And now he sits as the guy who runs the only storehouses of food in the world, and the rest of the world comes in. And one by one, all the people of the world come and bow at Joseph's feet and say, hello, sir, we heard you guys have grain. Can we buy some? All the people of the world come and do this. Turn to chapter 45. Joseph's now finally, seen the suffering end. Now he is there in this new land. Now his story has turned. His story has changed. Now Joseph is living his best life now. You go, well, Joseph, you're, you're finally out of prison. Why don't you go home and see your family? We all know why he doesn't want to go home. People talk to him. You're Hebrew. Did you grow up, did you grow up out in what, Canaan? Yeah, yeah, my family's a mess. I'm not going to go anywhere near them. Like, poof. That's that part of my life. I'm done with them. Joseph's now sitting there as people come one after the other. And as he sits there waiting for people to come through, Joseph notices a group of ten men who come in one day. And he sees exactly who they are. Now, as they look at Joseph, Joseph's been living in Egypt for 20-something years. Joseph's wearing the clothes of an Egyptian. Joseph's now got the haircut, the clean, nice, high and tight, perfect fade haircut of the Egyptians. Joseph has facial paint on like Egyptian royals would. They come into the room and these ten guys all come in. This is the guy, this is the guy, he's the guy, he's the guy who has the grain. Okay, okay, yeah. Hello, sir, whatever. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> greetings, all right, yes. So we come from Canaan. We're starving out there. We heard you guys have all the food. Can we buy some food from you? And as Joseph looks at these ten men, he realizes 
these are the brothers who beat him up and threw him in the pit. He hasn't seen them since pit day. The last time he saw them, they were screaming and kicking and punching and dragging at the start of the worst day of his life. They were the ones who with ice-cold cruelty sat down to eat their sandwiches while he begged for his life. They're the ones who said, oh, look, here comes a, a slave caravan. Let's sell him as a slave. Let's lie to dad about him. Dad will never go looking for him. Those ten men are now at Joseph's mercy. Joseph has all the power. He's the man in charge. He can wave his hands at the guards and say, just kill all ten of them. And the guards will go, yes, sir. Just like that, finally getting even with the older brothers. I mean, this is like way worse than stealing the dried fruit out of Raisin Bran. Like, this is like a long-awaiting payback. And here they are. This is his moment. They're here. Oh, yeah. All the power is Joseph's. What's he going to do? 45 verse 1. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried. He shouted, emotionally yelled, Cause every man to go out from me. He said, Clear the room, not servants kill them. He said, Servants, all of you out of the room now. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. This is like the most awkward moment ever. Because you just asked a guy who's like really powerful and it's like a foreign country and they have guards and you got to be a little careful. You don't do the wrong thing unless you get stabbed in the neck. Now, like after we asked for the grain, we're like, sir, can we have some grain? He was like, everybody out! Is this how they normally do the grain here in Egypt? I don't know. If you guys know, Judah, do you know? I don't know. Levi's grabbing a rock. Like in this moment, they're all like, what's up, what's up, what's up? And Joseph's like, guys, 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 it's me. They're like, yes, Mr. Assistant Pharaoh, it's you. It's me, Joseph. And Levi like drops his rock and wets himself. <laughs> and Judah's like, me too. As they realized the guy standing with all the power and authority, the last time they saw him, they were screaming, let's kill this jerk. I, I hate his guts. I just want to punch him in the ear. Die. Like all those words come back in an instant in their mind. They remember pit day too. Because on pit day, they were like, we got rid of him. Ha <laughs> ha. I guarantee one of them was like, wait, in his dream, we were all bowing down to him. Ah, it did happen. Oh, snap. Joseph now moves into the most important part of the story, verse 2. He wept aloud. He's so moved in his heart. He's crying so loudly. The Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Does my father yet live? Is dad still alive? Like the puddle at the ankles of Levi's just growing. Is he? Is dad still alive, guys? Is he still alive? Uh, see what they said? Uh. And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. That's nice. Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I 
Elm, Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. They're just all dumbfounded. They're just like, Like everybody's stepping behind Levi. Splash, splash. <laughs> it was Levi's idea. I mean, it was Judah who said to sell him, right? It was Judah, right? Judah said it. Did we all agree it was Judah? It was Judah. It was Judah. I was like, give him a sandwich. And they were like, no, don't give him a sandwich. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, how's dad? Who, who's dad? Dad? We have a dad? I don't, what day is it? Where are we? <laughs> I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. Look at Joseph's clear vision of who God is. For God did send me before you. To preserve life. Wow. Guys, I, I know you're like terrified because, because let's be honest, you sold me as a slave. And for that, you're just a, a heap of jerks. You're all the worst. But I've come to realize something about that day. That the worst day in my life was the first day of God's meaningful work in my life. And he took that day with all of its pain and he sent me here. And I ended up in prison and it was the worst. This lady, she was crazy. She was like this crazy Karen. Every time I think about her, I'm like, Ugh. I've seen her at a couple of like parties. I'm like, oh, there she is. She's so weird. But then I got here and we were able to to make food reserves. And I wondered if you guys would come. And I'm so glad you came because God sent me here to make sure that you could stay alive. He sent me here to save your lives. Oh, that's a different view of God than almost anybody I know has of God. To look at his betrayal by his family, human trafficking, injustice, and false accusations, and say, God sent me here. That God had beautiful purposes, wise purposes, good purposes. And Joseph, do you know how much of the Bible Joseph had? None of it had been written yet. This was Joseph's heart of faith and a God he had learned about from his father and from his grandfather and from his great-grandfather. What wealth you have of the revelation of God to see who he is and believe in him and trust in him. Joseph had nothing but his heart of faith and he goes, I've learned to trust God through all of the terrible moments of my life. Because God sent me here to do something. It was never meaningless. It was never pointless. All the suffering of my life was actually God's perfectly wise preparation for this beautiful day where I could save your lives. Brothers, I love you. Not, I hate you and I want to murder you. It's interesting the story goes on. Joseph had survived by the wisdom of God and by the might of God. By the hand of God now had saved the lives of God's very people. We would, know, would not have the tribe of Levi or the tribe of Judah from which the Messiah comes had Joseph not been sold into human trafficking. We would not have the tribe Judah from which the Messiah comes if Joseph had not been sold into human trafficking and betrayed and falsely accused. We would not have that because they would have starved on the backside of the desert. But God in His perfect wisdom worked out a flawless plan to bring a Hebrew boy into the middle of a prison to meet the Pharaoh. It was a long time coming. There was a lot of pain getting there. But Joseph never took his eyes off of the fact that God is in control 
even when bad things happen. And the story gets harder and the story gets heavier because by the end of Genesis, you find that Joseph's dad does move to Egypt. He gets to see his dad again and it's this day of rejoicing because he's finally reunited. His dad had thought he was dead, but now his dad knows he's alive and dad moves in and now the whole family moves to Egypt. But something strange happens. The brothers all the while are like, yeah, you forgive us, do you? (laughs) Do you really? Because in their hearts, they'd never do anything like this. Their hearts are corrupt. And and to them, they're like, man, if I was in Joseph's job, I would have cut Levi's head off first. I would have been like, guard that guy with the rock in his hand and the pee at his feet. Get him. And then I would have looked at Judah and been like, you know what? Stab him in the leg. Make it last a while. That's what I would have done. But then their dad dies. And notice what they think. Genesis chapter 50. We're coming to an end. Genesis chapter 50. What do they think when their dad dies? This reveals their hearts all along. Dad dies, Genesis 50, verse 15. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, will certainly requite us all, pay us back all the evil which we did unto him. Their view was that Joseph was only being kind because dad was still alive. But now that dad's dead, okay, honey, pack your things, get the kids, we have to get out of here, okay? Joseph's going to come and kill us now. Dad died, and that was the only reason that Joseph hadn't killed us yet. Just get ready. Get all the stuff. Get the dog. We're about to go. They send a messenger unto Joseph. They don't even go to Joseph. They're like, send the messenger. He'll kill the messenger. They send a messenger saying, thy father did command before he died saying, here's what dad told us, okay? Listen here, Joseph. So shall you say unto Joseph, forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. I feel like they they wrote it for their dad. Dad said. And like they misspelled it in Levi's handwriting. Dad said, forgive them all because they're pretty good fellas. Also, you have great hair. And here's three bribes for cabin cleanup. Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of God thy Father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. It broke his heart that they thought he would still kill them after all this time. His brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, We are your servants. Joseph said unto them, Fear not. Am I in the place of God? God's the one who's been at work. Am I going to be the one who takes control now from God? See what he says. As for you, you did think evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. You still aren't getting it, older brothers. I'm not going to kill you. I've never wanted to kill you. I've trusted that what God did in my life was to take your evil, actual evil. He's not calling it good. He's not saying it was okay. He's saying what you did was evil and all of you should pay for that. But I'm willing to forgive you because I see how plainly God meant it for good. God wove together every detail of this reality for good. I see it clearly now. God meant it for good. Those who trust in God don't have to be vindictive. They don't have to be vengeful, have revenge in their hearts against the people who have done them wrong. When you really trust God, you realize that even the actions of, in, of people indicate more about their broken state, more about the sin that they're trapped in, than the suffering that you've been brought into. God 
meant it for good. God wove it together for good. He orchestrated this thing perfectly for His wise and good purposes. From Joseph's earthly perspective, it was evil. But from Joseph's heavenly vision, he could see that his wreck of a family and his betrayal by his brothers and the human trafficking he was sold into and the police chief who was a little bit too brutal and the corrupt criminal justice system that let him down, the false accusations that were made against him, God meant for good. And God accomplished something that was mind-blowingly awesome. He saved the world through one man's worst moments. Is that not how God does in the Gospel, friends? Is that not the God we serve? Was it not that in Jesus' life it came down to the worst of days? Jesus is with His disciples. We'll never betray you, Jesus. That night that they said that, before midnight, all of them had betrayed Him. They bring Jesus and they put Him in shackles and they cart Him off. They take Him and they beat Him. They spit in His face. Mark says they line up 600 soldiers to walk by one after the other to hit Him in the face, to spit into His beard, Canes, thorns, mockery, insults. What is that all about? Because through the suffering of Jesus and His death on the cross, mankind can be saved. It's almost as though a God in control of the worst moments can accomplish the greatest goods out of them. God meant it for good. That's why. If we believe the Gospel, then we can look at our lives and come to understand that in stories like Job's and in stories like Joseph's, it may today only look as dark as evil. But beyond the clouds, a good and wise God who's in control of all things is at work. And He is working out all things together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. I don't know what it is you're in in your life right now. We mentioned it in Christian Life Seminar. Listen closely. Some of you in here tonight, I read Joseph's story, and you're like, oh, that sounds so familiar. Like people around you would be horrified to hear that, that some of your life has included pieces like this one. You're like, I, I've actually had moments like that, yeah. Other people in here, you're like, what? Not me. Not the people I know. The brokenness you hear in this story may be happening in your life. Look at me. That does not mean God does not love you. That does not mean God is not in control. What it means is with Joseph's words, it means God's at work. He's at work. And Joseph cried a lot in those years. Because it hurt a lot in those years. As evil after evil after evil broke his heart. But it never broke his faith. No matter where you're at, don't lose sight of the goodness of God. Don't lose sight of the fact that He loves you. He sent His Son to save you. He gave the most valuable thing He had to prove He loves you. Know that He loves you. That even while it might hurt right now, He's working it out for good. He says He is. You can trust Him. There's a piece here that I say that we said in Christian Life Seminar, and that is, if somebody is doing something to harm you, and it's against the law, God has also put in place legal authorities to protect you. So I don't say just keep letting people do evil things that break the law to you. God goes, I put the law there as my avenger. 
to punish evildoers. Find one of your authorities in your life, a teacher, a pastor, a deacon, a spiritual leader, and say, hey, can you help me talk to the authorities about this evil in my life? These people are doing this evil thing to me. They will help you. All the other moments of your life, though, those hard words spoken, those heavy days where people betray you, people mistreat you, do not lose sight of this, young people. Your God is in control. And he's at work. And you can trust him. He's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for those who come before us that through their lives and their testimonies we can see plainly who you are. We thank you that with Joseph's testimony we can see that you're a God in control who takes even the most difficult and most painful moments of our lives and you work them out for your perfectly wise and beautiful plans. I pray for these young people here tonight, those that might be going through difficult moments, who might be suffering, who might have suffered at the hands of others. I pray that you would comfort their hearts first to know that you're not a God out of control, but a God in control of all things, that you're working, and that if they wait long enough, they trust you long enough, they follow after you long enough, they'll come to see that you are good even through those most painful moments. So help my friends to see this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.